As you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 85, I'd ask you to turn there if you've got one before you. I'll say a quick word, one announcement that we mentioned last week. Out in the lobby, there's a a collection box underneath the bulletin table for school uniforms for Casa de Fe, for the orphanage. Uh, Just two weeks from today, our mission trip team will be in uh, Quito, Ecuador, worshiping there with the church plant in Quito, and then traveling down to Shell that afternoon for a week uh, with the the orphans there and along with the Bartons at the hospital in Shell. And we're going to take along with us whatever school uniforms we can gather together to take. And so uh, if you have, if your kids have uh, khaki shorts or a blue or white polo type collared shirt that they've outgrown, then consider donating that and bringing it next Sunday to put in the box there, and we'll take it to Ecuador for a second round. So Psalm 85, the Psalms are a fascinating part of Scripture, a very very interesting section of the Bible for us. And you may know that the Psalms, the Psalter, as it were, the whole collection of them, are the hymn book of the Old Testament saints. These, this was their Trinity hymnal. These were the the songs that they sang in worship, the poems that they put to music, and they are always perceptive and often very striking in the way that they contrast God's righteousness with the brokenness of the creation. And they are very often gentle and soothing for a suffering soul. Young Christians, as you listen this morning, as we read this psalm, I want you to listen for this. See if you can, can, can notice, what does this psalmist want from God? What does he want? What does this psalmist, this person, want for God to do for him? See if you can notice that as we read Psalm 85. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation." Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people, to His saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps away. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. O Lord, we do pray that You would grant to us the grace of understanding, of seeing Your Gospel here in this song. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you saw in the past several days the headlines in the newspaper, of course, the 
mayor of Capel, was found dead in her home along with her 19-year-old daughter. And as the evidence piles up, it is very obviously a murder and then suicide, a very tragic incident, tragic beyond description, really. The husband and father of this family had died of cancer just two years ago, and naturally the grief, the grief was, was very deep for this woman and her daughter. They loved their husband and father very, very much. He was much beloved of them. But they pressed on, it seems. But now, the daughter having graduated from high school and financial ruin evidently pressing them down, it seems that the mother couldn't bear the weight, and so she planned this grievous way to leave this life and take her daughter with her. It was a remarkable story, a fascinating situation. She didn't want even to make a scene, it seems. She left notes of apology in the house and descriptions of how to care for things and even requested strongly that there be no funeral, no ceremony at all, just a quiet cremation and burial. That's all she wanted. She didn't want attention. She just wanted to disappear. It's been said that many people lead lives of quiet desperation. And surely this horrible act of desperation from this past week is far, far beyond what any of us could ever come to. But don't be so sure about that. I know of at least two pastors in our denomination who took their own lives, even in the midst of a seemingly successful ministry, somehow the weight of failure, the weight of expectation, and maybe even the weight of perceiving God's absence was simply too much to bear. And it can crush a soul. So what is one to do when the the weight of brokenness becomes too much to bear. What is a Christian even to do when the joy and zeal of their early Christian life has long since faded away? What is a Christian to do when he or she is not sure if God either knows or cares about their circumstance? And there are those among us in that place. What is one to do? Well, the psalmist turns such a person here in this song to the recalling and the requesting and the hearing and the believing by which our gracious God restores His people to life again. This psalm doesn't clearly specify its historical setting, at least not explicitly. Implicitly, though, it seems firmly planted in the 6th century B.C., The glory days of Israel were long gone, long since trampled under the foot of invading armies. The power of David and the wisdom of Solomon and the splendor of the gilded temple had maybe almost been forgotten in seven decades of exile in Babylon. All the consequence of Israel's sin. And now in 538 B.C., some of the first Jews began to return to this vacant and now desolate land where their fathers and mothers had been to begin to try to rebuild Jerusalem. And over the next 20 years, two decades, they actually laid the foundation of the temple 
and they made some efforts to rebuild the walls around the city, but antagonistic neighbors and a shortage of manpower led to their failure in these efforts, and they began to doubt. They began to wonder if God was even with them at that point at all. You know, it sounds actually a little bit like a young church that had been planted with great momentum out of a large mother church and began its worship gatherings in a children's theater seven years ago. And seven years later is still in that children's theater and bursting at the seams with children, which is quite fitting, and somewhat limited in what it can do in a confined space. You know, sometimes you might begin to wonder, God was with us then, but where is He now? What's going on now? I mean, maybe you wonder that at times. And it's right here where this psalm fits. Perfectly, in fact. Oh Lord, You showed us favor, but where are You now? And so, as prayer often does, this one leads a troubled heart through a conversation with God, and to a gospel resolution. And the first thing that this psalmist does is to recall the past mercies that God has shown him. Verse 1, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Now, though... They were removed by generations. These Israelites, at this historical time, knew the history of God's wrath against their and His people. They knew that it came against 300 years of rebellious and ungodly kings who succeeded Solomon in the line. And God's discipline was kindled against this people. But this psalmist, nevertheless, has the nerve, he might have called it the chutzpah, the bravery, the boldness, to actually remind God of His merciful acts that followed the discipline. God had preserved their land. He had restored the fortunes of Israel. He calls them Jacob here. But more importantly, He had forgiven them. He forgave their iniquity. He covered their sin. He withdrew his wrath. He turned from his anger. In other words, he had dealt with their sin and he had removed his discipline. His past mercies to them were great. And it's the first thing that you do when the weight is too much to bear. Whatever the weight is, you recall God's past mercies to you. You recall when he provided just what you needed. You recall when he prevented just what trouble you anticipated and maybe even saw coming ahead. You recall when he produced just the right repentance in your heart. You recall his past mercies. Now, this psalmist didn't know Jesus. In other words, the second person of the Trinity had yet at this point to take on flesh. He didn't know, hadn't seen Jesus, but he knew that God is a redeemer who atones for sin, that is, covers sin, as he says. And he knew that God propitiates his wrath, that is, he turns it away onto someone else. And he was well acquainted with the mercy of God, and the reason we know that is because of who he was. The psalmist tells us who he is. He's a son of Korah. Now, sometimes those little prescriptions at the beginning of the psalm don't seem to, to matter to us, but they do. They do matter, and this one is a son of Korah, this writer, 
A thousand years before this psalm was written, Korah, a man, an Israelite, had raised a fist of rebellion against Moses and consequently against God himself, saying, No, I will not accept your authority over me. And so the Lord put him to death along with all of those who were aligned with him. But in Numbers chapter 26, we see the recalling of a past mercy. In that account, it reminds us of Korah's rebellion and his death. But the writer of Numbers tells us the sons of Korah did not die, which is remarkable if you think about it. Such a rebel. The sons of Korah did not die. Rather, they were preserved, it seems, to write psalms. Twelve of them, in fact, including the one we looked at last week and this one today. Twelve of them, these sons of Korah wrote, and it is a past mercy that's being recalled here because they could be named in the Psalms as the sons of Levi. After all, Levi was the namesake patriarch of their tribe. But instead of that, they carry a badge of rebellion. They are the sons of Korah to recall God's past mercies that the sons of Korah did not die. Rather, they lived on to write psalms to troubled hearts. If you have recall like this, then it may be all that you need to carry the weight of brokenness, of failure, and of expectation. But if you need more, the son of Korah carries on by requesting gospel promises. See what he does in verses 4 through 7. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, he says. Then put away your indignation toward us, Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. One of our kids recently asked a really good question. He asked, how does a person become a Christian? And I told him there is a simple answer to that. There are two things. Two things that a person must do to become a Christian. It's really quite simple. A person must turn away from their sin. In other words, they must repent. And a person must turn in faith to Jesus. In other words, they must believe. Repent and believe. So he asked, which one is harder? And at this point, I gave a wrong answer. I actually chose one. I shouldn't have done that. I actually chose one. I said, well, this one's actually kind of harder. But I shouldn't have done that because it was a wrong answer. And later I corrected myself because both of them are hard. In fact, both of them are impossible apart from the Holy Spirit being at work in you. You can't turn from your sin and you can't turn to Jesus, either one. But having given the wrong answer, he then capitalized on that opportunity and asked, can you do one without the other? I'm not sure what he was looking for there. You know, maybe an easy way out. Maybe halfway I can do it, and halfway I'm not going to bother. But either way, he asked that question. It was a good and logical question at that point, and I quickly said, no, 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 no. You can't pick and choose. You have to do both. Both of them are absolutely necessary for one to become a Christian because the gospel promise requires some turning. And this is exactly what the psalmist requests. Restore us again. Turn 
us again is the word he uses. Actually, five times in this one psalm, he uses the same word. We read how God restored or turned the fortunes of Jacob. You turned from your anger, he writes. Restore or turn us again. Revive or turn us again. Let them not turn back to folly, we read. All in the same psalm, all the same word, a theme is developing. A turning is required, and it's requested here as a gospel promise because it is the gospel that a turning will occur. Now again, typical of Psalms, this is a very bold request. Bolder, perhaps, depending on how you read it here. Is it restore us again, or is it turn yourself to us again, O God of our salvation? Now I'm not a linguist, per se, but those who are read this and they say it really could go either way as far as a translation goes. And it actually is appropriate either way. But it seems to me, pastorally, that there's a little more chutzpah to this, a little more boldness and bravery in actually saying, turn yourself to us again, O God of our salvation. And it's actually quite consistent theologically, isn't it? The rest of Scripture, you know, we read in Numbers chapter 6 of Aaron's blessing to the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift His countenance upon you. That is, turn Himself to you and give you peace. And the questions that follow in verses 5 and 6 simply belabor the obvious negative answers, don't they? You know they're coming. Will you be angry with us forever? No. Will you prolong your anger to all generations? No, of course not. Will you not revive us? Turn us again. Of course I will. And in the midst of that, show us your steadfast love, which is our grounds for hoping for all of this. You know, you as a saint, you as an Israelite, can request this very thing yourself, this turning. It's given here, this requesting, for your own use. You know, if you don't know how to pray such things, it's given here for you to use. You just have to read the psalm. It's why we do our liturgy the way that we do. You've noticed every week, you know, we give you in our liturgy Scripture. Our liturgy is not just heavy with Scripture. It is Scripture. We go through it verbally every Sunday morning together, Scripture upon Scripture, because it is God's words given to us, no less than Psalm 85 is God's words, more than they are those, those are the sons of Korah. They are God's words, God has given us a template to pray. And you have to recognize that there's something a little bit playful about this one here. And it happens frequently in the Psalms. In His Word, He has given us words to remind Him of something that He has supposedly forgotten. But does He ever forget? Sometimes when we put our kids to bed, I will ask one of them, now, why do I like you so much? Sometimes they say, I don't know. But sometimes they actually give the right answer. You know what they say? Because I'm your kid. And then I say, oh yeah, I forgot. Now I remember. That's why I like you so much. It's just a, a playful, parental, fatherly gesture of love. And that's exactly what we have here in this psalm And in so many psalms, these questions, these prodding questions are given to us as a template to request the gospel promise 
that He Himself turned to us and that we turn to Him. Now there's more on the path of restoration, more than recalling and requesting. There's also a hearing of eternal truths that come in response to the request. Verse 8, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people, to His saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Now for just a moment here, the psalmist puts on his priest hat, as it were. He takes what is a corporate prayer, give us life again, and he begins to intercede as a priest would do. It's as though he's saying to the people who are hearing, now listen, we've recalled God's past mercies to us, and we have requested his gospel promises yet again. Now everyone be quiet and let me hear what God will say. Let me hear what God will speak to us in response. And what does God speak to his people? What does he say to his saints? It's very simple. Peace. Peace. Peace is what he says to his saints. That is his response. The eternal truth of the gospel, it is here, that with whatever chutzpah, whatever boldness or bravery, a saint requests it, the answer is peace. You know, we're not so far removed from the book of Romans to forget, are we? That since we've been justified by, by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. It's just that simple. But there's a little caveat here in verse 8 that's very important for us to notice. And it's so subtle and brief, as though the psalmist is almost hesitant to mention it because he knows that his audience is of tender, fragile souls and he doesn't want to scare them away, but he can't not mention this. But let them not turn back to folly, he says. It's a poetic way of simply saying, watch out for smoke, because where there's smoke, you know what comes next. On our vacation in June, we spent a few days at the beach in South Carolina. And whenever you're at the beach, you know, you see the typical uh, beach creatures, ocean creatures, you know, sand crabs on the beach and the little mussels that burrow their way down into the sand that kids love to chase after and collect and jellyfish every now and then. But we also began to see a very interesting creature, a fascinating one that you don't usually see at the beach, baby reef sharks about eight inches long. They kept showing up. You know, we, we saw one in one of the drainage ditches that comes from the marsh back out to the beach, swimming along the drainage ditch. And then along the pier, about a mile south from where we were at night, we walked along the pier and the fishermen lining the pier were catching baby reef sharks by the dozen. Just little eight-inch sharks. And the kids love to see those. I can hold a shark in my hand. Look at his mouth. He's thin. He feels like leather. It's a, it's a real shark. It was kind of interesting until the next day as we bobbed up and down in shoulder-deep water with a couple of kids on my arms, and I began to wonder, all right, there are lots of baby reef sharks here. I think we'll go play in the sand the rest of the time. And sure enough, about a week later, after we were long gone, Mary's mother read an account in the newspaper of a shark attack just to some miles north of where we had been. A teenager was bitten on the leg by a reef shark. Apparently, mama wasn't far away because where there are baby sharks, there are mama sharks, and where there's smoke, there's fire, and where one turns back to folly, there's a fool. 
Now, the psalmist is subtle about it here. He, he just says to us, let them not turn back to their folly, as though he just wants to remind us, but not go too far into it. But Solomon was not so subtle in the Proverbs, chapter 26, where this son of Korah surely got this. You may know it there. Solomon writes, as a dog turns back to his vomit, so a fool turns back to folly. Now, I love dogs. I'm a dog person. Many of you maybe are dog people. You love dogs, and I enjoy dogs. I love being around them, but you have to admit that dogs have some nasty habits, right? I mean, you've got to admit that. When I was a kid, our German shepherds that we had in our backyard would now and then eat something that they shouldn't have, like you and I do sometimes, and they would get sick at their stomach. And they would respond to that by beginning to nibble on the grass, which I always thought that was fascinating. What are you, a horse now? You're eating grass. I, I don't know if it soothed their, soothed their stomach or, or what, but inevitably then they would throw up. They would vomit. This nasty, putrid, yellow, steamy stink. And then when they felt better, they would return right to it. I'm not sure if they were ashamed of what they had done or they felt they shouldn't waste the food, but they would return and begin to lick it up out of the dirt. You may have seen that happen before. Now look, it makes my skin crawl, and I'm sorry to bring this to your attention this morning, but this is what's here. The psalmist doesn't give you that wretched picture. It goes unwritten here, but the point is clear. Listen, if you have requested the promises of the gospel, that God turn to you and that He turn you back to Him. The eternal truth you've heard is peace. Now, would you turn back to the folly of your sin? Would you turn back to it? Would you lick your own vomit out of the dirt, as it were? I mean, pardon the stench, but seriously, seriously, would you turn back to your folly? For you... For whom the weight of brokenness is too much, and you who fear that God may or may not have any concern for your trouble, you've heard what God speaks to His people. Peace. Now turn, but not back to your folly. Turn to Jesus again and believe. Now the one whose circumstances cause them to doubt, to wonder if God knows or cares, needs to follow this course of recalling past mercies, of requesting gospel promises, of hearing eternal truth, and finally, of believing future joys. This psalmist wrote for a particular crowd, a particular audience. As I've said, he wrote to downcast Israelites who had returned from exile and now two decades into the sweaty, back-breaking labor of rebuilding past glories, now maybe wondering if they labored in vain, he wrote to them verse 9. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. That glory may dwell in our land. That would have brought back to their minds historical pieces of the Shekinah glory, the pillar of cloud by day and the fire at night, the visible presence of God. It's what they wanted. It's what they longed for. But it seems that from God's perspective, to return to the glories of David and Solomon and that Shekinah glory presence would be to sell short the whole redemptive plan. Because 
After all, his full intent is that the glory may dwell in the land. God created the world that the glory may dwell in the land. God decreed the fall that mercy might prevail so that glory might dwell in the land. God spoke through his prophets that glory might dwell in the land. He ruled through his kings so that a little taste of glory might dwell in the land. He interceded through his priests so that glory might dwell in the land. He came in the flesh so that glory might dwell in the land. And when Jesus comes again, that glory will, will dwell in the land. So clearly, in fact, that all will see, as he continues to write, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. There's a perfect harmony between the two, between creator and creation. Yes, he says, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. And then how can verse 13 not be prophetic of the Messiah? Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Now this psalmist didn't know much about the Messiah, details anyway, but his words reveal the Messiah. Righteousness will go before him and his footsteps will make a way. That's what he's looking forward to. Some Hebrews complaining about the vanity of their labor got much more than they asked for because the glory of God will dwell in the land and it will dwell in all of the creation fully and completely. Yesterday we went to the mall to run a couple of errands and as I was walking in with a couple of our kids coming our direction on their way out was a family including a young man in a wheelchair and he was crippled by some debilitating condition. I don't know if it was cerebral palsy or something severe but he was small himself and his feet were tiny and twisted. His legs kind of gnarled by the disease His arms were twisted and his wrists locked so that he couldn't even move them. And our children noticed. They saw and watched as children will as he passed by and went out. And noticing what maybe was kind of a teachable moment, I knelt down with them and I said, so you saw that guy in the wheelchair? They said, yeah. What was wrong with him? And I said, well, I'm not exactly sure what his condition was, but apparently... When he was in his mommy's womb, his body simply didn't develop correctly. And now he can't use his arms and his legs, and he's going to spend his whole life in that wheelchair. They were amazed. His whole life, he'll never walk? No, he won't. And do you know what caused that, I said? No. What? The fall. Do you remember the fall? We've talked about creation, fall, and redemption. And who was it in the Bible that was the first to fall? Who was that? Do you remember? Adam? Yeah, that's right. Adam was the one. Adam was the one who fell, and we all fell in him, and the consequences are everywhere, right? Even now we see the consequences of the fall. It's not that that young man committed some particular sin. He's just subject to the fall as we all are. And our kids were curious as they listened and they watched, their their eyes lingering to the door where he had now disappeared, And then they turned and said, okay, let's go to the toy store. Teachable moments don't always last, right? But in the moment, you can turn your direction, your eyes on 
the reality of the fall and recognize that the fall will be undone. Even as extreme as it is, in so many cases, the fall will be undone. All of its effects erased. All of its effects, a distant memory that none of us will even remember. When righteousness and peace kiss. When faithfulness springs up and righteousness looks down, creation responding perfectly to its creator. Nothing will be out of place. Future joy. Future joy. If your soul is crushed by the weight that you carry, whatever it is, the gospel is for you. The Hebrew hymn book has given us a course of action. Recall God's past mercies to you. That may be all that you have to do. Request the gospel promises and see the turning that's involved with it, both God turning to you and Him turning you to Himself. Hear the eternal truth that God has spoken to His saints. Peace. And believe. Believe the future joys of glory. Your God knows your circumstance and He will give you life again. Oh Lord, we do pray that you would grant to us life again, that you would cause us to see the glories that you have in store for your creation. Fallen as it is, would you give us faith to believe and to see that you call us to life in Jesus, even now, again and again. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.